0: welcome back everybody this is week 46 of creative come follow me for the old testament and i hope you're ready for a few curveballs this week We have shifted into a new part of the Bible. This is what they call the minor prophets, which just means there's a whole bunch of prophets. I think we'll do 12 back-to-back, and they're a little bit shorter than some of the prophets we've studied so far, and they just have very distinct personalities. (laughs) This week, we're covering Hosea and Joel, and I don't know about you guys, but I hadn't studied Hosea in depth before this, and I was... At first kind of shocked and then intrigued and then i came to love hosea so a couple things you should know about hosea and joel first hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom we don't have a lot of those prophets we don't least don't have a lot of those writings so this is kind of unique and we've gone back in time like back to second kings 10. hosea is a prophet in the north at the around the same time that isaiah is a prophet in the south so if that helps you kind of wrap your head around what time frame we're working with his message is similar to Isaiah's in that it's all about you know how they need to set aside idolatry and how there is trouble coming. Remember, this is right before the scattering, before the ten tribes are lost, and I get the feeling that Hosea is a bit of a Hail Mary pass. You know, it's this last effort to try and salvage what is left of that northern kingdom, and it's um, it's an interesting way to do it. I think because it's a Hail Mary pass, The Lord teaches in a different and distinct way. Hosea's life will basically be an object lesson and we'll watch it play out and it'll first kind of catch you off guard and then you'll sort of love it. So I look forward to that one. Joel is similar in that he has a similar message of to avoid idolatry, but we have no reference point for Joel. In fact, it's kind of fascinating because You know how no man knoweth the day nor the hour when the savior will come again for that second coming most of joel's message is about the time before the second coming so i think it's kind of cool that the book of joel actually has no time frames you don't have a king that's announced or any kind of time stamp on it so we don't really know when joel lived we do know that he was a prophet to the south and that he's going to try and prepare people for what is coming but not just in their time also way down the road so it's something that we should take heart in it's messages that peter used and he quoted joel also the angel moroni when he comes to Joseph smith will quote joel these are pertinent scriptures that you don't want to miss so this is a good week to dive into the notes in fact if you're not part of the course and you're hearing this instead of watching it if you're on the public podcast this week because of the number of chapters we have i'm actually going to add a link to the notes in the description of the podcast. So with those of you who are coming from elsewhere can at least get your bearings. Because you guys, we have a ton of chapters this week and I won't be able to go very deep in the videos or the podcast, but I went pretty deep in the notes and gave you a lot of quotes from the general authorities to help you understand this doctrine. Because what I would tell you is at first glance, this isn't gonna feel like it applies to you in almost any way. At least that's how I felt when I first read it. And then when I came back to it once, and twice, and a third time, and I settled in doctrine that I've learned from just this last conference and ideas I got when I was teaching in my other calling. Things started to click together. I started to see the Savior in so many more places in this week's chapters than I did when I first began. Yeah. So, in the notes, hopefully, you'll get a feel for that, and if it will help you in your study to see the Savior, I'll be opening them up. But otherwise, grab your scriptures and let's get started, you guys. To be totally honest, the first time I read through these first three chapters of Hosea, I was not a fan. (laughs) I studied them briefly in the past, but this is one where I felt like I needed to go in deeper, and I just didn't like it. I don't like what's asked, but I found myself feeling the same feelings for Hosea that I felt for Abraham, that I even felt for Nephi when he had to kill Laban. Like, you can see the conflict of commandments, and it's a It's a hard thing to wrap your head around. What happens with Hosea is he is asked to take a wife of whoredoms. His whole life will become a metaphor for that, basically what Isaiah taught to the Southern Kingdom. Isaiah taught that in that metaphor of the bridegroom that Jesus or Jehovah is the groom and the children of Israel are the bride and they are in this covenant relationship. Just like we talked about before with President Nelson's message about covenants defining relationships and that it means a tight bond. And there is simply no tighter bond than this covenant of marriage. In addition to it typifying that, I think it's also something that every person, no matter what rank or file of person you are in Hosea's time, you understand this level of commitment and the betrayal that will come, the pain and the hurt that would come from the betrayal. I I feel like that's part of the reason why Hosea is asked to live this kind of life. I also think it has something to do with Hosea being a type of Christ. But I got to tell you, this understanding didn't come to me for the first couple times I read it. It didn't actually hit me until I was teaching my YSA class. And this week we spoke all about the condescension of Christ and how he chose to descend to live among mortals so that he could be the Savior that we needed him to be. Not just that he came here, but that he lived like we live and all that process of condescension and what it means. Once I started speaking about that in my YSA class, understandings about Hosea clicked into place. I see him as a type of Christ because he's basically someone who was asked to do an incredibly hard thing to to, to commit himself to someone who he knew would not be faithful, someone who he knew was not ready for the commitment. The same way the Savior committed to us and committed to the children of Israel, knowing that we are fallen and that we will make mistakes and that He chose to love us anyway and chose to stay with us anyway. If you watch for that message in the chapters as we weave through them, I think new ideas will come your way. At least they did for me, Uh, but I think they're going to be unique to each of you. So I, I would watch for those types of Christ moments as you read through Hosea's story, and hopefully new things will pop into your mind. In chapter one, you're going to see him take this wife, her name's Gomer, and then they'll have three children. It's not clear whether these are actually Hosea's biological children or if she wanders even at this stage of their marriage and if these are someone else's. But the names of the children are indicative of the prophecies that are coming, that the northern tribes are going to be scattered, that they're not going to be able to have the mercy that they could have had in the past, and that they will no longer be called God's children. All of those things are woven into their names, and it's a pretty powerful message, especially as you jump into what you find in chapter 2. In the Hebrew language, idolatry and adultery actually derive from that same root word, and you see these, you know, parallel tracks as you see Hosea's story. Essentially, what will happen is his wife will stray. If you go on the Come, Follow Me manual, it talks about her unfaithfulness and how he typifies what we see in Christ, because he is directed to bring her back. In fact, chapter two is a bit of an invitation from the Lord to come back. It's hard to see when it's actually Hosea speaking to his wife versus when it's the Lord speaking to Israel. But again, I think those metaphors are supposed to blend into each other. So if you get to points where you can't tell which one is which, I think that's actually instructive. Uh, This is a incredibly poignant useful metaphor and you'll see it bubble to the surface in chapter 2 this is when they're directed to call his people with call them again my people so this is almost a reversal of the names that we just heard and talk about how they will obtain mercy and then there's this invitation of how to obtain it so in 2 it talks about pleading with your mother that she is not my wife remember this is a there's no covenant anymore there's no promise between them so he's The Lord is inviting the children of Israel to make covenants again and to come back to him. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born. That message, I think, is a message of you're going to go back to how you were. If you choose not to be a participant in this covenant, in this close relationship with God, you are exposed. You are vulnerable. If you... choose not to use the atonement of Jesus Christ. You are vulnerable and exposed, and that's what he's trying to teach them. They are opening themselves up to danger. That scattering and the Assyrians taking over, that's going to be a bloody, awful phase for the Jews, and it's right around the corner, and Hosea is trying to help them understand that. And it does it by talking about these lovers. So again, when you see those words about adultery, think of idolatry, because that's what the children of Israel are doing. So it talks about this wife who shamefully goes after other lovers. It's interesting. It's in verse 5. It says, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. This Personification of a woman who is seeking after other pleasures is really instructive. I think we all tend to do this at times, right, where we know where we should turn, and instead we seek after other sources of pleasure, other sources of gratification, and it never yields the fruit we hope it will, right? Because wickedness never was happiness, and that's what she learns really quickly. What I think is really interesting is what you see in 6. It says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up all the way up with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. I think the Lord oftentimes can't prevent our agency, but He certainly will make hedges. (laughs) You almost picture like a bowling lane with those bumpers up. I think we do this as parents all the time where we can see our kids veering down roads that we know where they lead and we can't necessarily stop them especially as they get to those older teenage years but you create a lot of hedges <laughs> you you know put filters on their phones and set time limits and because you want to create hedges to help them avoid that inevitable end and that's what i see in these verses as well i love also what you see in 7 and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better with me. It was better then than with me now. This is, you know, like the prodigal son, but in female form where she, she seeks pleasure and happiness in all the wrong places and ultimately gets to a point where she realizes she needs to go back she didn't find what she was looking for, which is that point that all of us get to when we go down those wrong roads. What I love is what you find in eight. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. This is a, he's basically trying to teach the children of Israel that during all this time when they turned away from Jehovah, He was blessing them. The whole promised land is a great blessing towards them, and they're taking those blessings, not appreciating the fact that they're coming from Jehovah, and they're actually using them for false gods. They're turning them into other things to worship, and you hear the Lord's frustration with their choices. It just sounds like a parent to me who Provides, you know, if you ever had that situation where you took your kid's phone away and you're like, I provide you and I pay for this incredible thing. And then you used it for this, you know, you just, you can feel that frustration in him and he calls them on it basically. So in these verses, you see his judgment come about to the children of Israel and how they forgot the Lord. So in 13, she went after her lovers she and forgot me, saith the Lord. And then 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I thought this was a fascinating shift in the chapter. He offers to gently coax them back to discipleship. He will speak comfortably to her. I do think this is the same kind of comfort we read about in Isaiah. I don't think this means he's going to talk really nice and make the doctrine sound good. I think this is the kind of comfort that, remember we talked about Rocky and the coaching that happened with Rocky, that kind of comfort. I think that's what he's offering is, I'm going to come to your aid, and I'm going to be in your corner. Despite all the betrayal, I will be in your camp. Let me help you. Uh, Because he offers this door of hope in 15. And then when you go a little further, you see that Later, much later after the scattering, he will also betroth them to him again. These are prophecies about the last day. It's important because traditionally speaking, when people are this wicked, in fact, Jesus himself talks about how at this stage they were almost as bad as they were at the time of Noah. That's how off course they are. But he promises not to destroy them. He's made promises to their fathers, to the patriarchs and the matriarchs, that he will look after their children. And so, he promises that the covenant will return, but it's going to take some time. Um, I love that message. That, in fact, it's a pervasive message in almost all the chapters this week. It's this promise of mercy, this promise of forgiveness, and it's going to hold the children of Israel steady. I also think it's powerful what see in 20. He says, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. The end goal of all of this is not just that the Lord will have his people back, it's that they will know him. I think that's what President Nelson was trying to teach us when he talked about a covenant being a relationship, that our goal with these covenants and honoring our standards and you know, keeping the commandments and honoring our temple covenants is a way to come to know the Lord in an intimate, personal way. And that's what he's promising these children of the latter days that will come back to the covenant. If you look in 23, you see the promise, and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them that were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. It's going to be a long time coming. They're going to have incredible loss in the meantime, but there is this ultimate message of hope that there will be a reunion. That's what the great gathering is all about. It's us allowing this great reunion to happen, and it's prophesied all the way back in Hosea 2. There's another twist in Hosea 3. This is where Hosea is directed to to buy his wife back. She's already been unfaithful to him and gone astray and not appreciated the gifts he was given or the, the love he extended to her. She's already done all those things. And in Chapter 3, he's directed to buy her back. Makes you think that maybe she, in fact, a lot of the scholars I read said that she probably was sold into some type of slavery based on her life choices, and he goes and purchases her back because he purchased her with so little money that it makes you think that she must have been in a slave-type situation. And then he brings her home, and there's a period of kind of keeping her away from all those influences she's had and and a time of... Holding back. Again, I think this is a metaphor for the children of Israel where there will be a time when they don't have access. In fact, if you look in the verses, it sort of says that blatantly in four that there will be a time where they're without a king, without a prince, without sacrifice, or without the temple. They won't have the ephod, that pouch that they used to hold the urim and thummim. They won't have access to revelation like they did in the past. He's talking about this the period of consequence that happens both in the actual image of Gomer and also in the children of Israel. But then, as always, it talks about a return. So if you end in verse 5, it talks about Israel will return and seek the Lord. When Israel shifts gears, the relationship is ignited again. The same way when Gomer turns to Hosea, that relationship becomes tight again. It's this incredible promise. I think what caught me in this chapter is this understanding that sometimes We are commanded to love people who are hard to love. I think all of us have those situations that a big part of our life's goal is to learn to see people the way the Savior sees them so that that difficulty in love gets easier and easier over time. Everybody has somebody that's really hard, sometimes a lot of people that are hard, but when you choose to love them anyway, or you choose to love the Lord and let Him help you learn how to love them, I think you become more Christ-like. I think for most of us, learning how to love the people that are hard in our life or learning how to forgive those who have against us in some way, those are some of the moments that are the most humbling, most instructive. There, There is power in that hard. And I think that's what we're learning from Hosea's story in this chapter, that that we each might be in this spot. where We're commanded to love and forgive in a hard situation. And when we choose to do it, there's power there. One of the things that's kind of scary about our day is that truth seems sort of relative in the world we live in. Everybody sort of defines their own truth and or d- proclaims that there is no truth. And I feel like chapter four helps you understand where that road goes. Basically, that's what's happening with the children of Israel at this point. If you look in verse 1, it says, there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. I think it's interesting that pairing of those three things, that when there is no truth, all of a sudden there is no loving kindness, there is no mercy, because there's no sin. It's like those verses in the Book of Mormon, and then there's no knowledge of God. So, these people that once had this profound connection, this Abrahamic covenant with Jehovah, have set all of that aside. In fact, if you look in 6, it says, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will reject thee. Joseph Smith taught this really clearly, that a man can only be saved according to the knowledge he acquires. Nobody can be saved in ignorance. So that's what's happening here. They're setting aside all of it. And verse 7 teaches you that they were already increased. So their accountability is higher. I think it's the same thing that's happening with us and the standards. You know, when you look at the for the strength of the youth, it's teaching you that your accountability is higher. A lot of people saw it as like this relaxing of the standards, but I really don't think that's what the message is. The message is, I trust you because you know more. And when you know more, you're accountable to God more profoundly. So you have some big choices to make, and they continually turn back to idols. You can tell why they do in verse 8, that in some instances, their own teachers and priests of the temple are persuading them to sin. Things have to be pretty bad to get to this spot, but basically, if they sin, they would have to make a sin offering at the temple, which would give more meat to the priests who served there. So the priests who were there were so corrupt that they were trying to convince people to sin in order to get more for themselves. And it reminded me of this conversation I had with my brother-in-law, Troy. So, he runs an urgent care, several of them up in Idaho, and he was talking about well, if he really wanted to boost his business, he would give out trampolines as a prize to all the families in his city <laughs> because then business would boom. And I think it's that same kind of idea that they, they are manipulating the doctrine of God. They are manipulating they are changing the boundaries and changing the laws in order to benefit themselves. And that's a level of wickedness that God won't tolerate for long. I also think in this chapter, it's really interesting to see that when there is no truth, people turn towards other explanations. They write their own narrative, and a lot of it comes in superstition. So, they turn to weird idols. If you look in 12, their stocks and their staff, those are different kinds of idols. They sacrifice on mountaintops. They they don't abandon this idea that there is a higher power. They just have warped it so much that it can't help them anymore. They've they've created this counterfeit for what is real, and it just simply can't last. In fact, as you go th- further in the verses, you see that right now this is impacting the north. Hosea is teaching the northern tribes, and they're going to get scattered really soon. But a hundred years from now, it's going to happen in Judah as well, and so Hosea actually teaches both of those things before he gets to the end of chapter four. That message of backsliding Israel continues into chapter five, and you see that they're having problems at the foundational level. I think it's really cool how it's phrased in verse four. It says, "They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord." It, at their very core, they're setting up their structure in the wrong way. It reminded me of the conference talk we just heard from, oh, I can't think of his name. It's in the notes, where he talked about the anti-seismic. You know, he was an engineer, and he was talking about how to build anti-seismic structures, and this idea of the doctrines of the gospel provide us this framework to build a happy life. Not a perfect, you know, trial-free life, but a happy life, and that we can rely on those doctrines. Basically, they're building their framework on a whole different set of Concocted doctrines and therefore they don't have the pieces that they need. It reminded me of so when we were fixing our basement or trying to build our basement, we hired a guy to do the framing and he came and created all the doors for us because I really wanted things to look neat. And I'm i willing to do some things, but not all things. And I was so excited to finally get doors on these walls that we'd been building for a while. And after he left, the contractor left, we found out that every door frame he'd built was a different size. He didn't build them to the specific size of what like a Home Depot or Lowe's would sell. He just created them based on whatever the opening looked like. So then we had to order custom doors for every single door twice. You guys, it's a long story, but it reminded me of this verse because I feel like when you choose not to use God's framework, you actually double your cost and double the time and you end up going back to the beginning anyway. We ended up having to rebuild doors To the specifications that we could get doors for, and it's just this huge backslide. And that's what's happening with the children of Israel, and it's what happens to us as well. When we turn away from that steady framework that the gospel provides, there is no structure that can stand. And we'll either learn that in the framing process, or we'll learn it down the road when we try to order the doors. And I just think there's a lot of parallels in this chapter. You also see that the result is simple, that he has to withdraw. God can't be among them when they won't honor his law, and especially when they turn to other idols and cheat on him with these false gods. So he says in 6 that he will withdraw himself from them. When you flip the page over, you see more warnings. He talks about those who remove the bounds. This is in verse 10. Really cool turn of phrase, because basically what it means is someone who would sneak out and change the boundary lines so that they could steal property from their neighbor, basically. And it reminded me so much of what we hear in the world today, that if you're unhappy with the boundaries that your religion sets up, you should just change the boundary line. You should adjust the goalpost. I feel like that's the message in a lot of people's, you know, talk about religion. And the warning is pretty solid that if that's the case, then you are separating yourself from God. Remember, we talked about it a dozen times that Satan's goal is not to get you to sin as much as it is to get you to separate from God. And when you change the goalposts or change those boundaries, you open yourself up to that separation. You go a little bit further and you see the resulting action. Basically, at a certain point in time around verse 13, they look down and they see their wounds. They will see how damaged they've become in this process of building a framework that's a mess, the same way I got to a point when I realized how bad my door situation was and how much it was gonna cost, and they can't find any cure. What happens with the children of Israel is they will look down and say, all these false gods I've built, they actually can't help me. They can't cure me. They can't save me. It will be a time of ache and regret. And 15 is where you see the Lord's position, where He basically says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me early. This is the same thing that happens with us as parents when you have to put a consequence in place and you know your kids are going to be mad and they might storm out the door. They might say all kinds of things, but you know at some point they're going to come home because what other option is there? And I feel like that's what the Lord is saying too. He is the only way that can save. He knows they will come home. But in the meantime, he's not going to chase after them. He's basically like the father of the prodigal who goes home and he's not grumpy. I think he's there waiting, watching at the window, hoping the children of Israel will return soon Uh, because he has great promises in store for them if they will just seek his face. Hosea doesn't give up easily. In verse 1, in chapter 6, he's inviting them to come back to the Lord, that even though they have been torn and smitten, that they can be healed if they'll turn to him. In fact, I love that he says, in time, in a couple days, you know, meaning I don't know how much time is going to pass, that they can be in his sight again. And then in 3, then shall we know, if we follow on, to know the Lord. It's that press forward, endure to the end vibe. They, they're going to need to... Come to know him, and it's going to be a process. But Hosea believes this can happen, and I just think it's interesting how he talks about their devotions. So, if you're looking for, he talks about their their current goodness is like clouds or dew; it's it's surface level. It's something that dissipates, it, it evaporates in front of your eyes, and that's what their devotions to the Lord are like. In fact, I love how you can almost hear the Lord's voice when you read verse six. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. It reminded me of that story in the New Testament where the Savior goes and He heals the man who's been, whose legs have been, you know, He's at the Pool of Bethesda and His legs won't function and He wants that miracle and so He comes and He heals him on the Sabbath. And it's this beautiful miracle that happens that this poor man has waited decades for, and all the scribes and the Pharisees can see is that he picked up his mat on the Sabbath and that that's against the law of Moses, and therefore they can now catch the Savior. It's this, you almost can hear his words. In fact, he says this message in the New Testament a few times, that this is what all those law of Moses or, uh, rules are all about, that that order that he's put in place is to help their hearts change. It's what our covenants and commandments do for us today. They're supposed to help our hearts change. It's not this big long list of do's and don'ts. It's supposed to be something that turns us to him. In fact, if you go in the notes, there's a great talk that talks about sacrifice and that this idea of sacrifice is not so much giving up, but giving to, you know, the, the root word of sacrifice means to make something sacred. So when we give our time or our talents or even our financial means with tithing and fast offerings, we're taking those things and we're making them sacred. That It's a giving to, not a giving up. And there's a whole bunch more you can learn if you go in the notes you got to hand it to him. Hosea is tenacious. <laughs> in chapter 10, he's still going strong, inviting the children of Israel to come back, to learn and to repent. So he talks about them being an empty vine in verse 1. I think it's really interesting the way he phrases it. He says, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. Isn't that kind of interesting? Like It's not an empty vine. It's a vine that they have chosen to consume on their own. I think it's the same way if we take, you know, all those things we were just asked to sacrifice, our time and our talents and our financial means, if we take those things unto ourselves instead of offering them out, we are basically an empty vine. Because remember, the Abrahamic covenant is intended to give them this chosen status so that they can take the light to the world. It's supposed to be a way for, a gateway for everyone to access God's promises and covenants and blessings. And when they take those covenants and they hoard them. Uh, One, they lose the blessings and they become this empty vine that's of no use to the Lord. Where you see that coming to a head is in verse two. Their heart is divided and now they shall be found faulty. It sounded like Elijah to me when he was talking about, remember how he talked about how long will you halt between two opinions? You have to make a call. Joel's going to say this too about the valley of decision that we have to make a call because standing, there is no neutral in the gospel. So, if you choose to not be on the side of Christ, you are by default working the other direction, and he's warning them about that. And he talks about how at some point in time, this is around verse 7, that they will realize their mistake and they will wish that there were mountains to cover them. I don't know if you've ever been in that spot. I remember feeling like that as a teenager sometimes when I would make a mistake or crash my dad's car or something. And you just wish you could could hide and that's how they will feel, but in an eternal way. One of my favorite parts is when you flip the page over to 12. So it says sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord. You just get this motivational pull from Hosea. Fallow ground, I wasn't familiar with that term, so I had to go look that up. And it just means land that has been dormant for a while. So whether that's intentional because they're rotating crops and they leave you know, a field unharvested for a season so that it can get more rich and nourished, or if it's just one that's been neglected and now is ready for planting. It's this idea of come to the Lord and turn things around, like get an upheaval in your soul and turn things over to the Lord. It's a shake off the chains kind of verse, and He just is hoping they will take advantage of it because they can see the results of where they are now. If you look in 13, you've plowed wickedness, you've reaped iniquity, you've eaten the fruit of lies. To me, I feel like he's basically saying what we as parents say all the time, like, you know where this road goes. You know, if your kids have a friend that's just never really all that kind or tends to turn on them at the worst moments, you have these conversations with your kids where you're like, you know how they're going to treat you. Why do you keep going back? (laughs) And I feel like that's what Jose is trying to teach them, like, you know where this road goes. You've already eaten of the fruit of this lie. You know that it's hollow and it can't satisfy, so turn to something better. Let's toss the fields a little bit. Sadly, they don't listen, but he keeps trying. Chapter 11 might be my favorite chapter of this whole week's study, because I feel like the Savior's voice is just all over the place. And it's this loving parent. In fact, it sounds like a loving parent whose child has gone astray, far astray. And the way he speaks about his child, despite the fact that they've gone astray, was really insightful to me. So if you look in 11, he talks about Ephraim, his child, and he, in the beginning. You know, oftentimes when your kids do something hard. You think back on when they were so sweet and innocent and the happy times you had earlier. I think that's what's happening with him. He's thinking back on who they are, who they were when they began. So he talks about in three, I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. This is a metaphor of, you know, like a parent who holds on to their toddler's hands to help them walk, you know, and then when they fall, you comfort them and help them get back up. That's that's the image he's evoking. And he talks about drawing them with cords of man, meaning these are not like what you would use for be burdened on those kind of ropes. This is gentle, coaxing, helping. This growing up process that the children of Israel have been through, it's been this gentle approach. And at the end, he talks about the yoke. So he says, the custom at this time was that if you had an ox with a big heavy yoke on, oftentimes the farmer would lift the yoke, not take it completely off, but lift the weight of it so that the ox could go down and eat the grain that they were trying to feed it. And I'm sure that the ox has no idea that that burden's been lifted off its shoulders. And that's what he's promising he's been doing to the children of Israel all this time. So he's thinking back on these memories of what he's given and what they used to be like, and his heart is just sorrowing. It's like those phrases in the New Testament where he says, how often when I've gathered you, like a hen gathereth her chicks, like he's just aching for them to come home. And in seven, he drops all metaphor and just says it blatantly, and my people are bent to backsliding for me. Though they called them to the most high, none would exalt them." And then he talks in 8 about how they basically have earned the judgment that similar cities to Sodom and Gomorrah got, that there was destruction that happened. But 9 is where you see what he chooses to do. He says, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, and I will not enter into the city, meaning he won't come to destroy. I thought this was so powerful. The statement of who He is, is so clear. And not just who He is, but that what defines Him is His ability to choose. Remember, everything we're learning in this life is all about self-mastery and how to choose to be like the Savior and to be like our Heavenly Parents. And what you see exemplified here is that he is someone who has mastered the ability to choose, to feel emotion and to choose how to react. That's the meekness we admire about him in the New Testament, that he has this ultimate power that is under ultimate control. I just think it's such a powerful image because we tend to think like men. (laughs) We think the Lord sees us like men and we don't think the same way. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And I think he's trying to teach us that, that when he sees us, He doesn't just see us in the mistakes we made today. He sees us as who we were. He remembers helping us and guiding us, holding our hands as we learn to use our agency, and He can see us far into the future. So these mortal mistakes that we make are not definitive. They're not defining who we are in His view. In His view, the children of Israel began far in the past when they were just young and beginning these covenants, and they will extend far into the future when they will eventually circle back and come home. That's how he pictures them, so he can continually forgive. I think it's why the, that Hosea metaphor works because he can continue to invite this backsliding, unfaithful wife back home because he doesn't see her in that moment of mistake. He sees her as a full person, someone bigger than what we as mortals see, and I just think there is such profound hope for all of us in that message to never forget that he doesn't see you as man sees you. He is God, not man. And I just love that verse. Do you remember when Jeremiah warned us not to trust in broken cisterns? I think Hosea has that basic message in verse 1. Ephraim feedeth on wind, and followeth after the east wind, and daily increaseth lies and desolation. He can see that they are feasting on something that can't last. It's, you know, like watching your kids eat Twinkies for lunch. They just can't, can't sustain them. But for me, one of the most powerful parts of this chapter is when he talks about how often he has taught them, all the different ways and means. He has tried to reach out to them. I think it was cool to me because as a parent, I feel like we do this all the time. Where I'm trying to teach my kids in a whole bunch of different ways, with object lessons, with stories, with analogies, so that they can get the message. My hope is that at some point, one of these things will click for them and they'll get the message. And that's, I think, what the Lord has been doing for the children of Israel as well, because he talks about what he's offered them. He encourages them to turn to God in verse 6 and turn to the mercy and judgment. And then he says, I've spoken by prophets, I have multiplied visions, I have used similitudes in the ministry of prophets. He's talking about all the ways they have been called. Remember, it's the same thing we saw with right before the flood in Noah's day that there was a a surge of people trying to get them to change. It's the same thing we see over and over again whenever someone is about to be destroyed or scattered, there is this surge of prophets who are sent out with strong messages to try to persuade the people to change. They just don't do it. But what I think is powerful for me is that it reminded me of how I am accountable for what my prophet says. They're being held accountable for all the ways God tried to teach them, whether they listened or not. The same way I think we're accountable for what our prophets try to teach us, Whether we choose to study the general conference notes or not, we're accountable for that knowledge that they've tried to give us. So it kind of motivated me to get back into my conference notes a little bit more. So you'll see a lot more from this conference in the notes this week for that very reason. One of the ways Hosea teaches the people about setting aside their false gods is by shining a great big spotlight on what the true God can do that nothing else can. And that is that he has the power to ransom, to redeem, to resurrect, to save. And you see it so profoundly in this chapter. So in 13, he talks about the warnings about idols and then about they're gonna get tossed around in the whirlwind. I actually really love this visual. It's one that's used several times in the Old Testament and in the Book of Mormon. In fact, Mormon talks about it and he says that it's like being tossed about on the waves without an anchor, without a sail, or without any means to steer. The reason I love that visual so much is I feel like this happens to me. When I get casual in my discipleship, and there's been times in my life where that's been the case, I find myself pulled. You know, when a friend or a sister leaves the church and I hear their complaints or their frustrations and my testimony isn't deep, I find myself Pulled. Same thing happens with social media. I'll read a post, or and all of a sudden I find myself kind of like, oh, maybe there's more to that, you know? Like because I wasn't rooted, I become vulnerable, and that's what he's warning them about. And the way he wants them to root themselves is in a doctrine that is so hope filled. He talks about how there is no savior beside God. So if you're looking for, there shalt thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no savior beside me. He warns about them forgetting him. And then he talks about why you should plant yourself in this rich, fertile soil. When you flip the page, you see that he is their only help in 9 and then 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plague. It's like, O death, where is thy sting? You know, that same kind of message. O grave, I shall be thy destruction. This is a promise that you can rest on. If you can believe the resurrection then i feel like the floodgates are open to believe in almost anything else that the gospel teaches because nothing is bigger than that that is a profound promise one of the talks i read i think it was paul johnson it's in the notes He talks about a cloud of witnesses and how there were so many people in the New Testament who witnessed that the Savior was resurrected and walked among them again. And then if you add on the people that we—the hundreds that we see in the Book of Mormon who witnessed that the Savior was resurrected and that He walked among them and came again, and the many more since that time in latter days who have promised that He lives and that they have seen Him and that He is resurrected— if you add up that cloud of witnesses, you've got this thick cloud that is unshakable. And if you can believe in that promise, then it opens up a floodgate to believe everything else. Because in comparison, nothing, nothing even comes close to that kind of promise. So not only is it comforting to all of us who have lost or fear losing others who we love, it is a promise that opens up Hope for every other point of doctrine. And that is something that I feel like you can feast on. So don't take my word for it. Go in the notes, read that talk. It has such an incredible message of hope. And I think that's what Jose is trying to teach in this, you know, this last ditch effort to get the people to change that don't root yourself in idols and vain things that can't hold you. Let your soul sink deep into the doctrine of a savior who can save, who can redeem, and who can resurrect. That's doctrine you can sink into, and it will hold you in every storm of life. And Oh, it's so good, you guys this last chapter of Hosea focuses on the latter days and their return. So there's this invitation from Hosea to turn and to return back to the Lord or to repent. And I love the way it's phrased. If you look at the end of two, it talks about, we render the calves of our lips. And I was like, What is that? So then I had to study more and learn more that basically this, if you go in the footnotes, you can find this or in the notes from the course, but you can see that this is just an invitation to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit, to submit your speech and your actions over to the Lord. That's what's going to change things for the children of Israel. That's how they will come to Him when they start to turn over their wills to God and see what He can make of their lives. And I love the promise. It's in four. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. That is how you know that he is God and not man, that despite countless generations of backsliding, he promises to restore. He promises to make whole all that was lost in the process when this Generation in the latter days comes to him, he will heal, he will fix. That's the promise. He will love them freely. It's the same thing we saw with Hosea and this, you know, unfaithful wife. He will love her as soon as she comes back. As soon as she starts to change, he promises. In fact, I think what we see in Hosea, and certainly what we see in the Lord, is that he never stops loving. The only thing that stops is the blessings. He will always love the children of Israel. He will always forgive them. What He can't do is always bless them unless they turn to Him. And that's the same thing with us. He, His love for us, I feel like, is unending and has always been. But what He wants to do is love and bless us. And in order for that to happen, we have to live the commandments. We have to honor His law. And I love the promises you see in the rest of the chapter. In fact, one of the most powerful to me is an eight. It says Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard him and observed him and I am like a green fir tree from me is the fruit found. This is that next generation. I think it's so cool because Ephraim is the tribe that's kind of sent to be the gatherers. So this latter day generation of the tribe of Ephraim will bring people home. And the reason they're going to bring people home is because they've seen they've observed, and they have become something different. They have set aside any false tradition and they have learned from that master example that we have, and they are evergreen. They are ready and they are willing to bring everyone home. And I just think it's a really beautiful image to end the chapters from Hosea. Okay, on to Joel, you guys. There's three chapters of Joel that we're studying, but they're mostly about the latter days before the second coming the commotion that's going to happen in the world and how we as saints are going to navigate things and what i would tell you is if you just go straight into joel you're going to struggle a little bit because this is apocalyptic literature this is kind of like reading you know john's words in revelation where not everything has been fully revealed. So you can take a lot of guesses, you can read a lot of scholarship, or you can just go to the gospel topics and read what we do know. So that's what I found the most helpful to me is I went into the gospel topics and in some of those related talks that they offer and learned more about the time before the second coming And then went into Joel, and then I felt like I could sift through what mattered and what I can set to the side. And for me, what really mattered is where you learn about how the saints are supposed to act in all this commotion, that there will be times of trouble and there will be ways to find peace. So if you look in three, one of the ways we can do our part is to tell our children and their children and their children's children about the second coming of Christ, And then when there is commotion to fast. I love, this is in 14. Sanctify ye a fast, call a solemn assembly together, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Don't you love that that's the answer to when there is incredible commotion and fear in the world, that we gather together as saints in the temple and we fast and we pray and we seek guidance. And the implied promise is that we'll get it. In fact, that's what you hear from the prophets today and in Joel's day. that That's a prophet's job, is to help us know when to move. And so that's what he's trying to get us to understand. I think it's a little cryptic in Joel 1, but I feel like that's the message we get from our prophets. So it's probably the most powerful for us to study today. But it gets a little deeper as you go into Joel 2 there's some comfort, even in verse 1 of chapter 2, because it says that there's going to be a trumpet blown. I don't know if this is literal. I think it probably means the prophets will tell us when it's time to be in action. I don't think this is going to be a secret thing that only a few members of the church know what's going on. I think this is the prophet's whole job is to warn us of things that are coming and help us rally. So that's the promise you'll see in 2. you also see some warnings about how bad things are going to get we tend to think of the days before the second coming as a day of rejoicing and a day of, you know, there's all the saints and the great gathering and all the light. But it's important to understand that there will also be gloom and darkness in the world at that time. And that's what he speaks about Into a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness as the morning spread on the mountains. There will be wars and rumors of wars and A lot of that happens in Jerusalem. It's often called the Battle of Armageddon. Again, you can go in the gospel topics, you can learn a little bit more, but that's what he's warning about. There will be this great battle that is about to ensue. But I love that most of chapter two is focused on how we navigate it. So if you look in the verses, so for example, in 11, he talks about this that the Lord is going to be great and terrible. We've said that a few times in a few different ways this year, but that he can be both simultaneously. To the righteous, it will be a great day. And to those who have not been, it will not be a great day. (laughs) So, you can be great and terrible simultaneously. But what is powerful to me is how he extends out. In these last days, there is this invitation of mercy and forgiveness. It's what we saw with Hosea. It's that same pattern. Whether you've deserved it or not, there is this extension of Come home. You'll see it in 13. And rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. Meaning, don't just put an outward display of sorrow, turn your heart to God and show Him that you want to change. For He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. Remember how we talked about that's the nature of God, that He can control His passionate responses and He can choose to be merciful and gracious, just like we saw in the last chapter. He talks about gathering the people together. You'll want to watch the footnotes in this chapter for the JST changes, because there's a few important ones here. I highlight them all in the notes. So if you go in the notes, you should get the basics. But I love his invitation. He says he's going to pity his people in 18. And then you see this bestowal of gifts. And I can't go into each of them, but he talks about the different ways he will help them as they all come home. He will send them corn in 19 and wine and oil He'll push back the enemy in 20. He'll push back any threat in nature that's going to impede them from growing and coming back to the promised land. All that's going to be taken care of. He promises a former and a latter rain. You can go in the notes and learn more about this. But this is basically saying, I'm going to give you the rain at the beginning of the season to soften the ground and make it ready for planting. And then I'm going to water you throughout the season so that you have the nourishment you need to regrow. Isn't that, visual? it just sounds like Isaiah to me. So the former and latter rain will come. He will restore what has been lost, the years of decay that they've had, and he will restore their dignity. If you look in 26 and 27, these children of Israel who've been pushed around and abused by many nations and many peoples will be will be protected and will be dignified in the way that he wants them to be. And that's a pretty impressive promise. But my favorite is in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. This is what Moroni talks to Joseph Smith about, how in these latter days there will be this outpouring of the Spirit, and your sons and your daughters will have visions, and people will start to teach. And this is where we are, you guys. This is that phase where because there is an outpouring of His Spirit, light floods the earth, changes happen, doctrine is taught clearly, that's where it all comes from. He is the source of all that goodness, and He lets it trickle out through the saints as He, you know, endows them with power and gifts. It's just this incredible promise. I love the idea of pouring out, because it's not just a measured out amount, it is this abundance of His Spirit. And when there is an overflowing abundance of the Lord's Spirit, miracles just come about in its wake. That's the promise that happens with Zion. And then he talks about how they will, there will be deliverance. Uh, it'll get a little deeper as we go into chapter three. So let's go there next. Okay, if your kids love the Avengers movies, you'll love chapter three. Because <laughs> that's what this reminds me of. I have that written in my margins. It's like, you know, those final epic battle scenes of any Marvel movie where everybody has to come to the table and be ready to like fight the good fight. And you have to make a decision about which side you're on. In fact, it's set in a valley of Jehoshaphat, which it's supposed to be that time right before the Savior comes again in the Jerusalem area. There will be, it's literally translated to be the valley of decision because all of us are going to have to decide. In fact, hopefully you've decided far before this point in time whose side you're on. And it's either the Lord's side or anybody else, right? And that's what's happening here. He's calling people to prepare the way for this battle. What's interesting is he calls everyone to prepare. If you look in 10 and 9, you see that he's calling the saints to prepare for war. In fact, it's a total reversal to what we read about the millennium when people are supposed to beat their plowshares. Remember that when they're, this one, they, it's a reversal because they're taking their gardening tools and turning them into weapons. So it's totally opposite of what we'll see in those thousand years of peace. But he talks about when he comes that he will be there to judge. It says plead, but if you look in the footnotes, you can see that plead and judge are actually kind of synonymous in this. So there will be a time of judgment, and even though he's called all of us to help prepare the way, he himself will fight battle. I don't, I don't exactly know how that plays out, but we know from Isaiah's writings that he has trodden the wine press alone. This destruction that needs to happen, the cleansing that has to happen in the earth is something that the Savior himself will do. Our job is to prepare the way. In fact, if you listen to lots of the prophets and apostles lately, they use that phrase that we're preparing the way for the second coming of the Lord. And then his job is to come and carry out this initial judgment that will happen. And you have to love the way it's phrased. In 16, the lord also shall roar out of zion and utter his voice from jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake but the lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of israel it's like you know it just sounds like the avengers <laughs> it's got this like absolute there is no question who's going to win this battle but it will be a battle and it will be a it will be something that we all rally around that he he provides this saving that occurs In 17, so ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in thine. Remember, that's what we're hoping for. That's what he's been asking us to do, not just in Joel's writings, but in Hosea's. That The whole purpose of all of the commandments and all of the covenants is to come to know the Lord. And when we see him fight this incredible battle for us and provide this safety in this crazy commotion of the world, we will know him. I just think there's power in that phrase. And then when you read a little further, you see the outpouring of blessings that come because He chooses to draw this wine press alone. He chooses to cleanse the earth so that we can have this next phase of the thousand years of peace. And that's what you see in 18. The mountains shall drop down new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and the fountain shall come forth. If you look in the footnotes, it references the fountain that we talked about in Ezekiel, the one that comes out of the temple and then heals the Dead Sea. That begins because of what happens in this valley of decision. And for me, it just motivated me to think of where I stand. Like today, I feel like we're all in a valley of decision. And my choices today will help me know where I'm going to stand on this day. And I just think it's motivating and It makes me so grateful for the Savior that we worship, that He is a God who is merciful, who forgives, who seeks after us, and who will boldly defend us in this time of great commotion. I just can't wait for that day. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course in the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.